out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. This week, it's going to be the turn of Evergreen Dazed, because I recently spoke to one half of the man. That is Mark Tuttle to find out more about life, love, poetry, and all that other groovy stuff. So this is the interview. Um, just to say the band performed in the early 90s, one half being Elizabeth Bruce, but this is with Mark. So after several minutes of interest and a casual chat, we get down to that exciting subject that was the early formative years. Mark, it's over to you. Uh, not really sure, to be honest. Um, back then, it was the radio and top of the pops on the telly. My parents didn't have a record player until... I was about eight, nine, something like that. And even then it was big band and country because my parents were about 10 years older than all of my contemporaries at school. So they kind of, you know, they were they were around in the mid mid 50s, not the mid 60s, as it were. Yes. So, so we didn't really have a lot of we didn't really have a lot of music in the house, apart from, like I said, the radio and uh, and top of the pops. Um, I was a, I was not a fan of glam. I can say that much. Um, but I probably mid seventies, my dad had a midlife crisis. Uh, he, he reached 40 and he suddenly decided he wanted to buy some rock records. So he bought uh, wish you were here by pink Floyd and, uh, come taste the band by deep purple. And I like both of those records. So I, I kind of, got in more on the rock end right. than, the pop, than the pop end and uh, but only through vicariously listening to my dad's records um but the other the real awakening i would say i had was um i used to go around a friend's house uh called colin and his brother was three years older and he was a total prog rock nut so i got to hear genesis yes uh, gentle giant all those kinds of bands at a very young age and so i just thought that was normal just listening to that kind of stuff rather than a three-minute pop song yes so so i was really kind of my first real kind of realizing how powerful music could be i guess is uh was kind of listening to genesis and then the the early steve hackett and peter gabriel solo albums and stuff like that so Fantastic. Who was that, Steve Hackett? Who was the other solo artist? Uh, Peter Gabriel. Peter Gabriel, yes. Oh, my God. Well, it's all a bit spooky, really, because several things you said there was, because we didn't have a record player in the house to begin with, because my parents, I think they were... I think when you're that sort of working class background from that period post-war and 50s, I suppose, started the family in the late 50s, and I came along in 64, I think they were the generation that never had any debt or owed money. So they would just, you know, save. And I think when my dad had a record player before getting married, he sold everything and then scraped the money together to eventually acquire such a thing. And I do remember we had several terrible records that they bought when they first got this record player in the probably early 70s. There was um, 
there was the the, the top of the pop of seeing the Carpenters. So I was very impressed with the Carpenters at a young age, and I thought that it was just amazing. And I didn't realise yeah. they weren't the Carpenters. There was also some, yeah, it was the big, oh, yes, the war, you know those uh, films, the war films that we had, 63 Squadron, Hannibal Brooks. They bought that compilation as well, which I quite like some of those tracks. And then some Terrible Country and Western, which I was quite, um, yes, horrified by people like Jim Reeves, Boxcar Willie, people like that were really horrendous. But um, so that was kind of quite an easy thing not to like your parents' record collection, really. But yeah. um, but interestingly, my brother called Colin was seven years older, and he was absolutely into the prog rock world. So it was all those bands you just mentioned, not Gentle Giant, but it was you know Yes, Genesis, Wishbone Ash, Barkley James, Harvest, the solo work of Rick Wakeman, which I loved. Um, John Anderson that I never managed to get to play and also Steve Hackett there was one called is it Spectral Mornings that um, yep. had a massive impact on my life um, and and obviously you get a bit older and then you start getting a bit bored of that sort of rock theme so um, yes Umba Gumba by Pink Floyd um, so all those so it's kind of funny when you started talking about that Peter Gabriel came along in the sort of 80s didn't he so well, his first album was like 76, 77. So oh, was it? it? Oh, right. Yeah, like the first four were all named Peter Gabriel. So they're named as like, you know, one, two, three, and four. Yes. And, apart, and he only had one hit, which I think was like Salisbury Hill in the Magic. late 70s. You know? Yes. So, but yeah, I guess, anyway. I ca yes, I can't remember which one was which. I just remember the album covers. And I think... At that stage, you know, you just went, oh, that's the one with the melty face or that's the one with yeah. the hands or that's the one that's with the, the car window. And there were certain tracks on them that I do remember. Funny enough, if I play it 30 years later, I know the lyrics to most of those albums. I think when he became kind of popular in the 80s, I'd, I'd gone, I'd sort of left Peter Gabriel way behind. But those early ones yeah. were brilliant. So did yeah. you then, when did sort of making, I mean, what type, what age were you when, or not your age, what what year did you leave school? Did you stay at 16 or did you go on to A-levels at 18 and go to university? Yeah, I did. Um, I did A-levels, uh, but then I screwed up my A-levels and couldn't go to college when I was supposed to. So I, I graduated high school, as they say over here, in 1983. And I was supposed to go in the fall of 83, but I messed my A-levels up for various reasons. And I, so I took a year, I'm going to say I took a year off, but I nice. didn't really, you know, right? So I worked in a shoe factory and a bakery um, and then went to college in 1984 instead. I just went a year later. Yes, but that, that formative years of being in a bakery, early mornings. Early mornings, yeah, getting up at four o'clock in the morning to start a six o'clock shift. And uh, it's going to sound like the four Yorkshiremen sketch, but I had to cycle eight miles to work and back because there were no buses at that time in the morning. So I didn't have any choice. Yes. So was, the, yeah. the winter of 83 was probably etched onto your oh mind yeah. quite, yes. quite horrendously. And also what yeah. I found... Because we we also I grew up in a little village and I had a bakery and I too worked in a bakery and had to start at six in the morning and those winters everything was freezing cold and yeah. dark and all you yeah. had was kind of you know waiting for the sunrise to come through it was um it was quite humbling and relentless really and um, yes there you go that's good so then at that stage what had you been to many gigs and started to sort of consume music at that that 10 yeah those those years 
Yeah, I'd say I um I think I went to my first gig when I was 15 which was UFO, the the heavy metal band or yes. heavy rock band. Uh at that time at school I'd kind of fallen in with a bunch of metal heads although they weren't called metal heads then. Uh, you know, the denim jacket, long hair. So I went to see a lot of heavy metal bands around 1980 to 82 when I was still in school. So like right. UFO, Motorhead, Gill and Judas Priest, Iron the Maiden. Status quo? No, never saw the quo. Never saw the quo. There was there were certain bands I, n- I never got around to seeing. But oh. um, but you saw but that... you saw Motorhead in their the classic lineup of um, Fast the, Eddie yeah. and Filthy. Yep, the classic. I used to. I, I remember the. I think the first gig was on the Ace of Spades tour, and some fireworks set fire to the curtain on the side of the stage. So they had to stop the concert for like half an hour while they put the fire out. But it was absolutely deafening. They were the loudest band I'd ever seen until I saw the Swans many years later. Nice. Who were who were also horrifically loud. Yes. So. Did you did you sort of throw up, or did they not? quite induce sort of sickness at that stage which one motorhead the swans. or the swans uh, i'm not joking they're the only band i've had to leave a concert because it was painful and i had earplugs in at the time my right. wife uh, uh, my wife just couldn't take it and so we just we just went outside we had to wait till they'd finished it really was actually painful so Good old yeah. Michael. He loves it, doesn't he? Yeah. He, yeah. he does like to torture. Yeah, well, <laughs> I suppose um that you know, the the denim, their long hairs, the quo, they were the they were the band. Quo, you you couldn't say anything against because you get beaten up where I come from. So yeah. they were absolutely it. But I did love, you know, Deep Purple, Black Sabbath, and then Motorhead. And funny enough, all the other bands. Uh, you know, I just couldn't sort of get into. I don't know. They did. They all seemed a little bit too, almost too slow. That's why I quite like thrash a little bit later. It seemed like Huskadoo yeah. and people like that just yeah. were like, oh, yeah, Big Black, great, you know, and all these kind of the buttholes and all that business. But no, I just couldn't get into Van Halen or or sort of Bon Jovi or any of those bands at all, really. So um, it's kind of interesting. I, so, yeah, were... so that... So I was, was going to say, say so that... your your heavy right. metal period was often that during that period was the that punk, then the post punk of you know like you had the Gang of Four, Public Image Limited, Magazine, The Fall was coming, The Nightingales, all those bands. So you just went straight for the sort of the heavy rock. I think it was. It, I think that also back then, um, although there's that like that gang element or tribal element to musical styles, I also like loads of other stuff. I love the Stranglers. I never got to see them live back in the day, but I love the Stranglers. I love Gary Newman, John Fox, um, a lot of those kind of electronic, new romantic bands. Uh, when I was at school, as I started the sixth form, I had this friend called Carl, and he taped me a couple of Tangerine Dream albums from the 70s, uh, which started a lifelong love of electronic music. So although I went to me- heavy metal gigs, I had a kind of a wide palette of music that I that I liked that I might you know that I listened to at home, yes. Uh, even though I wouldn't necessarily go see them live, kind of thing, because mm. you know you're a student, you don't have enough money to to go to every gig you want to. No, but that's one of the things we were we we were regret now, don't we? Really, because let's face it, they, they were so cheap, really, and um, yeah, so iconic. Yes, Tangerine Dream. That was a, a album called Ricochet, but I do remember Van 
Vangelis and Patrick Moraz albums as well being part of my brother's record collection, which had a bit of an influence as I tried to consume them. So then when you got to university, did you go to university in 84? Yeah. There you go. So, did, was this in Leicester? No, I went to I went to Bradford University, um, Oop North, um, and they were useless at getting gigs. Uh, they just didn't have a large ENTS budget. But they had a great club called the One in Twelve Club. The One in was... Twelve, the anarcho punk. I was going to say, yep. God, this is you would have been there with all the the I suppose crass. The Poison Girls, Blythe Power, Chumbawamba. I mean, this was anarchy, you know, in the UK, wasn't it? Yep, got to see. I, I think I've still got the first uh, Chumbawamba single that I bought for 10p in HMV in Bradford back in the day. <laughs> I do remember the best gig. I actually saw two two great gigs at the 1 in 12. One was Bogshed, who I absolutely adore. Uh, yes. I, can't, I can't make music like them, but I just love them. Um, and the other one was Pulp back in the mid eighties when they were on fire records yes. uh, and Jarvis was in a wheelchair at this gig. Cause he, it was around the time he fell out of a window and damaged his back or something. So I remember seeing those back in, back in the day and uh, going to a miners benefit, which the three Johns were heading. And sadly, John Hyatt just passed away a few days ago, the singer from the three Johns. So, uh, yeah, I got to see loads of great bands there, but we most of the time we went to Leeds because Leeds Uni, Leeds Poly, and the Warehouse was where all the where all the bands played basically. Yeah. So I got I got to see a ton of ton of bands. I saw Hurrah, um, the Primitives. I saw Red Lorry, Yellow Lorry loads of times because I was they're one of my favorite bands back in the day as well a lot of that you know it's kind of goth ground zero so you saw a lot of like skeletal family dance society um all those kinds of bands I mean, yes what about the sisters of mercy did you see them at that stage and the cult and um, or death cult i saw i saw the cult on the Dreamtime tour what was i don't know what year that was can't remember and the funny thing was i did see the sisters but i saw them in leicester um on a, uh, because they happened to be playing when I when I was back home at my parents. Yes. Um, and right. So and the joke is always you don't really you didn't really see the sisters back then because there was so much dry ice on the stage. <laughs> All you could ever see was like three hats. And a so, strobe. Uh, yes. Yeah, and a strobe. So yeah. There so you, you know, I I think that's how I kind of the the good thing that happened to me was two of my best friends one was into like electronic stuff like Cabaret Voltaire and weird stuff like P16, D4 and all these weirdo European electronic avant-garde bands. And the other one was into like the jangly American college stuff. So like REM, Rain Parade, Dream Syndicate, Green New Paisley. Red. You were into the yeah. new Paisley world, weren't you? Yeah. Yep. So that, so I, so again, I had like a wide palette of, friends who were introducing me you know it's all like cross-pollination when you're young and you're hearing all these new sounds and you get excited about it and stuff yes so, absolutely i mean it is yeah. it's a tw but then you know the most important musical moment in the last 60 years was you know 83 the birth of the smiths coming out of manchester yeah. so yeah. did that have a, an impact or influence on you at that stage because for five years 83 to 87 it was indie pop you know, I know Bogshed, Stump, Big Flame, we love them all. But, you know, the Smiths come along, it was suddenly, you know, things started to change again, didn't they? Yeah, I think they went 
from growing up in that era you went from the the anti-rock or whatever i don't know what the right term is you know where everyone's just basically making a noise to suddenly it's okay to be tuneful again and so you've got the smiths in the uk and a few other jangly bands on 1000 violins or something like that and then you've got all these paisley bands from the from the west coast of the us and some of the bands from boston as well uh so I loved it. I mean, I saw the Smiths twice in their heyday, two of the most frenetic gigs I've ever been to in my life. I thought I was going to die at one of them because the crowd crush was just ridiculous. But yeah, I mean, I love the Smiths. I've got all the records and thankfully saw them twice. So yes, the memories, the memories. So then yeah. you started, what were your, what was you, what were you studying in 84 in Bradford? Uh, psychology. Uh, so I did a, a science degree in psychology. Um, yeah, uh, I love psychology. The funny thing is, uh, when I left college, I decided not to go into psychology because it was like being a doctor. You need to do like three years postgraduate work, three years of like interning in like a mental institute or wherever, you know, you were going to do it before you could actually make any money or make any real money yeah so so i changed my mind after i left college i spent a year i mean i'd started i'd started during college playing in bands um and then when i left i went you know and and i also did a fanzine when i was at college with some friends fantastic so what's yeah, your fanzine so I, uh, it's called can't be beat named after the bog shed tune so uh we at the time, a mate of mine was able to get uh, this magazine called Forced Exposure, which was done by Byron Coley in the US. And we wanted our fanzine to be more like that than kind of, are you scared to get happy and all the kind of, as my mate put it, you know, the, the Xeroxed fanzines, you know, blah, blah, blah. So we interviewed lots of different, like a very wide style of bands in our fanzine. Uh, yes. We we had like the Icicle Works, Stam Ridgeway, Ut, um, Pulp, uh, the Shaymen before they became uh, Dancy when they were like a, Indie a psychedelic band. guitar. Well, the yeah, Beloved yeah. were the same, weren't they? So, uh, yeah. But I'm impressed yeah. you got Stan Ridgeway, little wall of voodoo there. Yeah, yeah. That was me. I love wall of voodoo. So uh, he, my mate was interviewing the Icicle Works in London and he bumped into Stan Ridgeway in the corridor of this hotel because he just had that big camouflage hit, the number one. And he said, can you do a quick interview, Stan? He goes, yeah, sure. No problem. So anyway, there you so go. we got him as well. Yeah. God, so. that's just amazing. So do you still have copies of all your fanzines? Uh, no, the first one. The first issue sold out like immediately because we got lucky. Um, there was a magazine called Underground, which started. Uh, I think Dave Henderson did that. Right. Did, um, Dead Man's Curve Records. And they, for, we just sent it off. We didn't think it, we were going to. We got like a big review and a picture in the magazine. And all of a sudden, everyone was right into us. And we literally sold them out in like two weeks. So, um, oh, so what that a was shame. Because there's yeah. a really, I don't know if you've come across the James Brown bloke, the journalist, not the singer, who did, um, brought up in Leeds and then went on to do Loaded magazine in the 90s. But his, his early part of that book, the first half before he, you know, 
went up to loaded, you know, that was the fanzine period to the NME is absolutely brilliant because um, I think you would relate to a lot of what he was doing and getting up to and all the bands, you know, from that period were all bands that you've uh, mentioned. So, um, yeah. yes, you should definitely check out the James Brown book. Will do. Yeah, I love all that culture. I mean, I remember, you know, taking armfuls of the fanzines to gigs and like, you know, walking through the crowd and trying to sell it to people and stuff. So, you know, and also you'd bump into other people doing their own fanzines and just swap fanzines. So I've got a, I wouldn't say a huge collection, but I've got a big collection of fanzines from the mid 80s in a box somewhere. Um, you know, some oh, with flexes, brilliant. some with flexes. So Yes, yeah, God, I, you should you should definitely archive them and yeah. digitize them because it's just amazing. There was a brilliant book came out. I think it was on Manchester University Press, and that was there was a whole bit on fanzines because Claire from Sarah Records writes a piece about hers. And funny enough, James Brown sort of gets in touch with Claire to find out how to do fanzines. Or the no, I think it's the other way around. Anyway. It's a nice little story because obviously, you know, she does Sarah Records with Matt and he goes on to do Loaded and that culture. Mm. But, you know, he comes from a period, a place which we all love. So um, we all now love James Brown, don't we? So there you go. So then, yeah, yeah so as the 80s trucked on, we got to 87, obviously the Smiths break up, Ecstasy comes along, you finish your university university degree without debt because you had a student grant hurrah mm-hmm. so what happens to you then at this this delicate point um well i tried to make it in a band that got nowhere um we played a couple of gigs but we couldn't get any interest from record labels you know recorded did the usual stuff played some gigs recorded a demo sent it off and nobody was interested and after about eight months of living at home uh on the dole, my dad said, you better get a bloody job, basically. So, or go back to college. So I went, uh, I think I'll go back to college. So <laughs> I went, I, I went back to college and did a master's degree. Um, so I did a master of science degree in information technology at what was Leicester Poly, uh, which is now De Montfort University. Right. So, uh, and at the, again, at the same time, I'm playing in bands uh going to gigs and was the princess uh, charlotte on your radar at this stage um yep that was the go-to place that was the place i played the charlotte twice myself in different bands and i saw and recorded a whole bunch of bands there as well so uh i saw husker do there oh, which marvelous. was lit it was the that is my finest gig memory i've i mean the charlotte is a tiny place it was packed to the rafters there was literally sweat dripping off the ceiling and they went absolutely they put a fantastic gig on and for some reason i decided to take my copy of zen arcade and go i'll see if i can get it signed i'd never talked to a musician really before at the time and bob molds on stage you know packing up his guitar i'm like bob can you sign this and he goes sure no problem and then i goes do you know where the others are he goes don't worry give me the record i'll get them to sign it so they signed it and then he gave it back to me so uh so i've got a signed copy of zen arcade which is wow. my most prized, not not best quality, but my most prized record. Pre- it's funny because Greg, Greg Norton's got a new band, Ultra Bomb, and they've been in the UK very recently um, doing gigs. And actually, it sounds good. It's it's very Huskadoo, actually, the band. I yeah. can't, um, anyway, there you go. Princess Charlotte, Huskadoo, brilliant stuff yeah. at that stage. Yes. Yeah, I saw, so I saw loads of bands there. And again, that was kind of, 
and a more all this cross pollination again because you'd see a band and then someone somebody else would be supporting them that you'd never heard before and this was kind of like the start of the era where bands brought records you know and had merch tables you know where you didn't have it before you know when you went to see the smiths in the 80s you could buy a little tour booklet and that was about it yes but, uh but yeah so you know i i, I can't even rem- I, I wouldn't be able to remember all the gigs i went to at the charlotte but it was it was that rock city in nottingham uh trent Polly, uh the royal theater in nottingham if it was a big group or de montfort hall in leicester and the poly and the university in leicester that was pretty much it for that kind of era Brilliant stuff. So then as as we got to sort of that, that you know, the, obviously ecstasy comes in, there's the dance scene, there's also Bleach from Nirvana and um, and then sort of Nevermind and Grunge, the Seattle scene. So at this stage, you're obviously starting to sort of feel excited about forming an, another band, aren't you, at this point? Yes, another band. Uh, so I was, see if I can get the chronology right. When I was doing my masters, I was I was in a band with a guy. We had a singer, but again, we never got anywhere. So then, uh, my friend, who was we've grown up together, um, this guy called Neil Carlyle, uh, who went on to be in Delicatessen and Lodger. Um, I've known him since he was like five years old. So we'd kind of been in bands together and then split apart and he goes my bass player is leaving for university do you fancy filling in for a bit so i did that for about eight nine months and then i went you know it's time to do my own music again so i formed another band but and then at this point i was like i've had enough of like being the only guy with a car driving to rehearsals <laughs> organizing the gigs because you know i was like the songwriter the rick the, the engineer the manager, the gig getter, all that stuff. I'm like, I've had enough of this. So I just sat down and I went, what do I really want to do? What bands do I like? And, you know, at that time it was the Sundays and more particularly this band called uh, Faith Over Reason, who I absolutely adored and worshipped. They only, you know, recorded a couple of singles on Big Cat. Um, But I love the sound. It's the sound that they had. And I said, that's what I want to do. So I started writing a whole bunch of songs. I put an advert in Melody Maker for a female singer. I had a three or four, five people show up for um, auditions. And then this one person showed up and it was that ching, you know, the everything went off in my head going, this is right. This is the right thing. Uh, and this was Liz, Liz Bruce. Blimey. And, and she didn't, you know, she, she was, She's actually from New York and she was in London on a year's study abroad, saw the advert in Melody Maker and then said, because it was in the classifieds at the back and, uh, and she turned up. And as, like I said, as soon as I heard her sing, I knew, I knew it. We had absolutely nothing in common musically whatsoever, but the voice was perfect. So, and so that's, how I, that's how I started Evergreen Dazed. And at that time, it was more, I was more into like the Sundays, like I said, Faith Over Reason, Butterfly Child, you know, a little shoegaze, you know, Lush, the more poppy end of Lush, that kind of stuff. I definitely wasn't a grunge guy. No. Um, it wasn't, funny just wasn't my thing. Going back to Faith Over Reason, I did an interview with the, the singer 
Um, Moira. Moira Lambert. Yeah. I tracked her down because um, yep. there was some, I think she was in a band with a guy who was at Norwich Art School and he he sort of said, no, I don't want to do it. But, you know, so I, I interviewed her instead. And then I didn't realise that she was the vocalist with St Etienne and, every, you know, um, Only yep. Love Can Break Your Heart. Yep. And she wasn't even credited. She never sort of got any of that kind of uh, kudos. But it was a really nice story that she had, actually. So faith over reason. Yeah. That was that was your moment, yes. And they yeah. really didn't re- release that much stuff, did they? No, they ended up. I think Big Cat because they they were all really young, and then they went off to university. And Big Cat did what uh, did what um, Fire did with the Rose of Avalanche, which is just throw a load of stuff together and put an album out without anyone's permission. So uh, it's like the a few the singles plus some demos, but. I absolutely, I just love that. I just love that sound. And her voice is amazing as well. Fantastic. So there you go. This is the beginning of Evergreen Dazed. This is it. Your sensitive side has come out. So was it with Elizabeth? Did you instantly connect? Was there that kind of chemistry and the stars lined up? Yeah, musically, yes. Um, I made a mistake in the start, which I addressed a few years later, which was, I was a bit of a control freak at that point. Um, So I wanted her to sing in a particular way, write lyrics about certain things and not other things. Um, So that first album kind of, to me, uh, there's some mistakes on it in the sense that I should have given her way more freedom to write whatever she wanted to write as a vocalist, uh, as as opposed to me trying to kind of, shoehorn her into a certain style or whatever um, yes this was um cloud beams in your eyes in yeah. your eyes isn't it in, yeah. yeah that's right so that's a sort of eight track ep lp isn't it really and yeah. what can't be beat records yeah i just because we'd done a fanzine called can't be beat i just decided everything was it was like factory everything was going to be called can't be beat so we did two issues of the fanzine so the album was the next thing, which is, and the catalog number is CBB3. So just following what Factory did, which is give everything, whether it's music or not music, a catalog number. Yes. And there was people like Muzzy Star as well around that time, wasn't it? Yeah. And yeah. the and Sarah Records was really yeah. beginning to develop. There was some brilliant bands yeah. that had come out of that kind of world really wasn't it so once the album came out what was what was next because obviously elizabeth is from america from one what her, was it just a one-year sort of student um position she had yeah so w- what used to happen was she used to come up i would work in the week at, so i would go to work i was working full-time at that point then in the evenings i would work in the studio recording writing recording writing and then on the weekends she would come up on a friday and we'd spend two days saturday and the sunday doing vocals and then she would go take the train back down to london on the on the sunday so we did that for like i think like nine or ten months that first album took forever it's like it's that joke you know you you've got as much time as you want to record your first album and then the next album's always a rush or whatever yes so uh, some of the songs were leaveovers from previous bands that kind of fitted as well. A, a lot of the uh, you know older songs just didn't fit our style, so you know it was like they're gone, they're out of here. Um, yes. Um, 
so but yeah we i bought um i've never actually recorded in a professional studio i've only ever recorded at home i started recording on a four track in the mid 80s um and so by that stage i'd paid my dues and i knew what i was doing you know i was able to get a good sound out of cheap gear basically yeah so um so and I did you play eight. many live dates at this stage we did, before the record came out we hadn't played live at all we were just concentrating on the record because what we actually were thinking was we'd sent a demo tape out to various labels as you do and again didn't get a sniff from anybody so we thought well we'll make a record and it's going to be two things if we get nowhere we've got like at least we've got a record of what we did yes. you know a, a one-time thing and but also we can use that as a demo as a calling card you know a lot better quality um so that so that was really it and that's why it's so short we had a whole bunch of material we probably had an hour's worth of material and we dropped a lot of it in case we got signed because we didn't want to put all the good socks on the first record <laughs> and then of course we didn't get signed so they never came out until they're going to come out next year on on a, a double CD reissue of this album. Right. Uh, you, so. I think that happened with Suzanne Vega in the 80s. I think she, like you said, uh, you've had your whole life to write the first album almost. And then if it does work, they say, right, can we tour the sort of sodded, do all the you know publicity stuff and then go back yeah. in the studio and release the, the next album in a year's time. And obviously it's like, well, no. But um, yes, the pressure is on, isn't it, actually? At this, yeah. yes. So once the oh. album came out and it was like mm, just that sort of tumbleweed moment, what, what was your sort of feelings with keeping the project going? Well, we actually, we had a lot of good reaction. Um, we got um, some good reviews. We didn't get reviews in the big press but we got reviews in fanzines and um things like uh adventure magazine in denmark uh which well was well known back then for kind of uh following up with kind of like paisley pop guitar-y type bands right featured uh ptolemaic telescope phil mcmullen's ptolemaic telescope we got an interview in that off the back of the album as well and uh I, this is a funny story. I don't think I've ever told this. So the person that painted the front cover was actually going out with Mark Kozalik from the Red House Painters at the time. And they'd just been signed to 4AD. They hadn't released anything yet. So I didn't know anything about them. And he heard the album and made some comments about it. Uh, and I got to meet him at a party and well, October 92. So we, what we decided was, was because Liz was living in America and I'd got a lot of friends, strangely enough, part of it from my fanzine days um, in the San Francisco Bay Area because I, I talked to a lot of the bands there and whatnot. So we decided to, <laughs> to have a record release party in San Francisco. So I flew all the way over to San Francisco uh, and Liz flew from New York and we played three gigs in October of that year, which were kind of like the record release party, as it were. Fantastic. So, yeah, I loved it. I mean, I, it's weird. Evergreen Days, they've never actually played live in the UK. They've only ever played in the USA. <laughs> so, um, 
So that was yes. fun. Um, and I and did you get meet... a good reaction as well? Yeah, uh, we sold. I mean, I I think I took twenty five records over in a in a suitcase, and I'd sold them. I'd sold out of them by the second gig. So I didn't have. I didn't even have any for the third gig. So which we ended right. up. Uh, we recorded on a on a Walkman, and a, a couple of those tracks are going to come out on the on the reissue next year as well. Yeah. So so I had a great time and that was really the catalyst that trip for me going I need to move to the bay area because back then there were so many great bands that I liked that were coming out of there American Music Club, Barbara Manning, uh and and various other ones uh, and there was a, a label called Heyday Records which was putting out solo albums by a lot of the Paisley Poppers like Jack Watson from Green on Red, Chris Kakavas, uh, Stephen Roback from the Rain Parade. So I loved all that stuff, uh, and I'd always I, I loved the West Coast on on the the trip that I made. Yes. So I was I then spent the next three years trying to move to the USA. So which I it, I just say it took a long time to get there. Yes. So, and um, was the the Beat Generation were they part of your kind of identity and sort of interests culturally not really no um i like boroughs but boroughs for me comes more from the industrial end of things because i'm a big like throbbing gristle spk fan yes so, and i actually know the guy i've met him loads of times who runs uh research uh, oh, yes. books and mag magazines uh this guy called vale he's a lovely guy he he found out that i well, we were chatting and I said, um, you know, J.G. Ballard is my favorite author. And he didn't, he, he was obsessed with Ballard and he'd interviewed him loads of times. And he ended up giving me like a personal photo that he'd taken of Ballard at his house during one of these interviews. And I'm like, are you sure you're supposed to be giving this to me? And he goes, yeah, 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 you're a fan. You can have it. So I'm like, it now sits pride of place in my recording studio, <laughs> even though it's got nothing to do with music. So, no, but inspiration yeah. is everything, isn't it, really? Yeah. So as the yeah. 90s was trucking on, and we had obviously Britpop on one side, which you must have been very sort of disappointed with, how were you then sort of developing as a artist and also following up your debut album? Because you brought out a, was it a three-track EP in a, few, a couple of years later? Yeah, so we sent the record out to various people um, and had a little bit of distribution for it. And I, I didn't send this person a copy. Somehow they got a copy. It was a guy called Louis Calvo who runs Elephant Records in Spain who were kind of like, I, I guess you could call them the Spanish Sarah Records right. uh, at the time. So, and he wrote to me and said, you know, can we put out an EP? I said, sure, no problem. So he says, the only rule is they can't have all, already been released. So I said, all right, I'll give you some remixes. So I remixed three tracks from the record, from the album. Uh, and I think he pressed, I think they were doing something like the Rough Trade Records, you know, Singles Club. It was like, they had a whole bunch of these singles and they, I think they pressed about 3,000 of each one. It might be less, I'm not sure. But um, he was like, yeah, don't worry, we'll put you on this. And then they put us on a couple of their label compilations uh one what was it called elephant juice so i think heavenly are on it uh you know and a, and a lot of all those kinds of bands uh and then he put another one out in 95 and we gave him a brand new track for that 
Yes. So I have a lot. I, I mean, I have a lot to thank him for uh, for doing that. I mean, he, you know, he just he didn't know us from Adam. And he's like, yeah, I'll put a record out. You know, I mean, it costs. I know because I put my own record out. It costs a lot of money. So, you know, I'm very grateful for that. And that got us kind of, no, again, noticed by a lot more people. Uh, there was a guy who wrote a book called Adrift in the Ether. It was about um, uh, underground uh, English bands. And he wrote to me and said, can I put you in the mag, can I put you in, put an entry in the book? I said, sure, no problem. Uh, and funnily enough, he never sent me a copy and I didn't track one down for about 20 years. And then I found one in a bookstore in San Francisco called Green Apple Books. And I'm like, wait a minute, isn't this the book we're supposed to be in? So I'm like, page in three, oh yeah, there we are. So I'm like, cool. <clears throat> that is fantastic. Uh, yeah, so, so at this stage, had you sort of managed to relocate or were you still sort of in Leicester but having dreams of California? Yeah, so 92 to 95, um, I was still living in Leicester. I was living in a rental with a couple of other guys. And somewhere in the middle of 95, I just kind of snapped and had one of those moments in your life that you have where you go, I've got to change something, you know, blah, blah, blah. Otherwise, I'm going to just end up with, you know, a cat, a house in the burbs and all this kind of stuff, which, of course, is where I am now. But back then it was like I need to do something. So I quit my job. And because I knew a few people in San Francisco, I said, hey, I'm going to come over. You know, I don't have. Oh, there's the mail. I don't have any. Um, I don't have any plans. I don't have a job. I'm just going to couch surf for a bit. Yes. So I went over in December 95 and I reconnected with this girl uh, that I'd met a few years before and ended up staying at her apartment. And eventually <laughs> we ended up being in a relationship, getting married, having two kids. Fantastic. But, uh, but, but, but when I first went over there, um, I, I was on a 90 day tourist visa. So it was like December, I was going to have to come back in April. And uh, I ended up applying for some jobs. So I was a software engineer at that point, And the Bay Area is great for software engineering. Uh, so I got a job and started living there in San Francisco. So everything's kind of a blur for about three years. Mm. Because I was I was learning to live in a new country. I was living in an apartment. I was married. Uh, I was learning to live in a new country. And I didn't do music at all for like three years. It was just all this kind of new stuff was happening. It was like being on vacation all the time. <clears throat> Excuse me. So I didn't really, I didn't really do any music from like nine, from when I moved in December 95 to like mid 98. And then at that point, I'm like, okay, time to start doing stuff again. So uh, I bought some recording gear. I had I, a lot of my stuff I just left at my parents' house, like in the attic and stuff, all my guitars and stuff. So I would just go go over on a on a trip to see my parents and then like bring back a synthesizer or bring back a guitar as an extra <laughs> piece of luggage or whatever gradually because it was going to yes. cost an arm and a leg so anyway um then i had enough gear to start recording so i bought 
the first album was recorded on a Fostex R8 reel to reel. So I ended up buying an American voltage version of that, you know, a 120 volt version of an R8 and a McKee 24 track mixing desk and set it up in the apartment. And uh, when my wife was at work, I had the whole apartment set up uh, so that the the bathroom was a vocal booth because it was full of tiles and it sounded perfect. Mm. And we had a giant walk-in closet that was great for recording guitars because it was dead quiet because it had carpets and clothes. So we were actually, so then Liz came out. I'd been sending her four-track cassettes uh, over this period. And uh, I said, you know, tell me when you've got enough lyrics and just fly over for a week and we'll just like jam all the vocal recording into a week. So that's what we did. So that was like mid-98. That's actually when the AM Sounds album was recorded, all of the basic tracks and stuff. Okay. But we didn't really have enough money to put it out ourselves. Um, so even though I talked with a bunch of my friends who were in the, in the music biz at the time, I couldn't get, I couldn't get enough backing from third parties to put it out so we just kind of sat on it um so that that's what happened there but right that I, was so that I, was kind of the the new labor period here wasn't it so yeah. did you bring, bring out at that stage as well the the album so when did the album he says looking up here um broken road that had been recorded earlier but only came out in 03 no that was so that was the AM sounds are record were recorded in '98, and they came that came out in 2005. Yeah. So, for so for Broken Road, what we did was we just started from scratch and wrote songs together from scratch, which was great. It was not like the first album, and not like the the way I'd done things with with the AM sounds, and I loved it. We were. Uh, me and my wife had moved to Berkeley at that point, and so we were living in a house. So I had a room to record in. Mm. Um, we had one kid at the time, not two, so we had a spare room in the house. So I set a little studio up in the in the room there. And again, Liz would get some lyrics together, and then she would just fly out for a week. And we, again, we'd just jam all the vocal recording together, and then I'd go and and tidy everything up afterwards, and you know, do this more overdubs, blah blah so blah. So, did you ever write lyrics, or was it always Liz? Um, she asked me for on the first album. She asked me to write some lyrics because she was struggling, and I did. And I'm not going to say which ones they are because I'm always embarrassed by them. <laughs> I'm not. <laughs> a, I'm not. A, I'm not a words person. I found that out when I was doing a fanzine. It's quite funny that you do a fanzine and realize, well, actually, I'm not really a very good writer. Um, <laughs> I'm all about. I'm all about the music. So I just worried about the music, um, and I let her do the lyrics. And I, honestly, I've never cared uh, what she writes about. Uh, at this point i'm like you you're writing from your experience yeah that's all i that's all i need to know right i don't i don't need to tell you to do this or do that anymore so so we spent let's see it came out in 2003 so i probably spent three or four years recording the songs bit by bit because i i'd had a kid in 2000 and it takes up a lot of time yes and uh and then she'd got enough lyrics she came out we spent a week recording the vocals mixed it all 
and then put the CD out. And I'm very happy with that that record. That's the one I like the most. The first one, I can tell it has elements of, I, I wanted it to sound a little bit like this and a little bit like that. It, it wears its influences on its sleeve a bit too obviously. Whereas the Broken Road album, it's all, we're just writing in the moment and we're just putting out what comes out. So I I really like that album. I, Without tooting my own horn, I did record the acoustic guitars really well on that. So Yes. So what I, are your I'm, sort of top top songs on that album? Um crikey, let me let me go have a look. Uh let me think about this. What what we call our Christmas song, which is wishing you well. Nice. Um, so we borrowed a, a toy piano off a friend and it, and it kind of makes it, it, it sounds like a bell, you know, those old toy pianos where they hit a, a little piece of metal. Yes. So it sounds like a bell and she sings lyrics about breaking up with a boyfriend at Christmas time. So we call that the Christmas song. Um, and wide open to love uh, because I discovered a new chord, which every other musician in the world knows about, but I hadn't. You know, and I'm like, wow, this sounds great. So I like that one. And then um, <clears throat> the pop hit, uh, as we call it, um, which is, I'm, I'm blanking on the title now. It's the second one on the album. Sorry, Little Heart. Yeah, that one, that one. That's it. So that's written in Dadgad tuning, which is funny because I'm playing Dadgad on a distorted guitar for rhythm, which right. is more which is more folky than anything else. But I've always been into alternative tunings and stuff. So those are the three I like the most. I like the last one simply because I I, I consider or not the last one, the last but one. Um, Wrestle the demons yeah, down. Yeah, because I I don't consider myself quote a guitarist. I'm kind of a, a, a jack of all trades and a master of none. But I actually did a guitar solo on that song that actually sounded good. Because <laughs> I'm not I didn't I didn't learn blues scales or any of that stuff, you know, learning guitar. I taught myself and it was kind of like listening to the Smiths and Echo and the Bunny Men and the Cure and like learning how to play their tunes. So I never took any lessons or anything. So I've always been people have asked me to play in their bands and I'm like, you know, I can't. I can't do a solo. I'm useless at that stuff. So, you know. <laughs> nice. Well, that's yeah. fantastic. So, look, that was quite a long time ago. What's what sort of musical journey have you had since then? So, my second kid was born in 2005 and me and Liz agreed that we were going to um put that that AM Sounds record out before the kid was born because I know I wasn't going to have any money or time you know, with two, two, a young and a newborn kid. Yes. She was actually living in the Bay Area at the time. So we played a whole load of gigs in 2003 and 2004 locally, um, just uh, mainly acoustic duo, duo gigs um, and really enjoyed it. Um, but then when that album came out, she was like, well, you know, my mom's not feeling very well. She ended up passing away not not too long afterwards but so she wanted to move back to new york you know she she grew up in manhattan she's a, a city girl yes um so i'm you know i don't know if you'd have to ask her 
um, whether whether the Bay Area agreed with her or not, but she wanted to move back. I'm like, well, if you're moving back, and you know, we'll probably let's just take a break for now. Yeah. So we so we never disbanded. We just kind of stopped um, temporarily, which has gone on for twenty twenty years. <laughs> so <laughs> so uh, so in the meantime, uh, I just record at home whatever I feel like recording. So my my brain works in the following way i write a song and i go what does it sound like okay it sounds like evergreen dazed i'm going to put that in the evergreen dazed pot for future use right it doesn't it doesn't sound like evergreen dazed so it it goes in this pot called nash space rocket which is my solo stuff and that could mean anything from a little two minute acoustic doodle to you know like synths or you know industrial noise or whatever so um i i haven't released any physical media but i've released i put four eps of elect electronic music out on Bandcamp in the in the last like five years something like that nice each, each one has like four four songs on it um, and do and you and has it been the case that you've been tidying up your archive as well for evergreen dazed Yes, that's correct. Um, when COVID hit, I was like, this is a perfect opportunity to just like go through all the old tapes. So yes. um, I digitized every four track cassette of every band I'd ever been in and all the reel to reels. Uh, there's about 30 reel to reels. And w what happened was um, we have the, we had the, even though we're in, you know, a nobody band, we, we had the classic problem that a lot of bands have, which is the Ampex tape problem, where the tapes start to shed after a while because of the chemicals in them. So I was like, you know, I'm going to get one shot at doing this. So I learned how to bake tapes. So I baked all the reel-to-reel -reel tapes and transferred them. I think I had about two or three run-throughs for each tape before they would completely fall apart. So I digitized everything. How did you do uh, the baking, by the way? Because it sounds really complicated. Someone did explain, but how do you do it? it? It does sound complicated, but when you actually go and find out, it's actually really easy. Um, what you do is you can buy a fruit dryer um, set uh, uh, and set the temperature very low, something like, I don't know, 120, 25 degrees Fahrenheit or something mm. like that. And you just stick them in there for like eight or nine hours and it dries all the, the the pasty chemicals out so that when you put the reel back on the machine, the tape isn't sticking to itself. Right. So it, so that's what that's what I did. And it took a lot, it took 18 months to do that because I could probably do one tape every three or four days. Um, but anyway, I only had one tape completely disintegrate on me, which unfortunately was not an Ampex tape. It was a BASF tape that had a cover of a felt song on it that had appeared on a, a uh, an elephant compilation. We did a cover of Mexican Bandits by Felt. Mm. And uh, we we deliberately... I mean, I love Lawrence. That's why the you know we're named after a, a felt song. Um, so we decided that everyone else was going to do these kind of jangly tribute songs you know, to try and sound like felt. 
So yes. we said, no, we're gonna do we're gonna do it like the pet shop boys. So we just did Mexican bandits on synthesizers instead, all pre-programmed on sequences. So and a lot of people liked it. So anyway, could you just not the... could you just not get a recording from the compilation, you know, um somehow? Is well, it, I've got, more... uh, no, I'm saying I I I have them I have a compilation of I, I have the C D. But I was trying to transfer the multi-tracks over, right? And the, and, and the multi-track tape shredded at the time. So I'm just saying that's the only one that I couldn't transfer. I'm not going to put it out anyway because we'd have to pay royalties on it because it's a cover. So yes, you know we we've recorded a couple of a few covers over the years. I did. Uh, we did. Uh, Here they roll down by Mexico uh, by uh, American Music Club, um, which. Mark Eitzel actually heard and said that's better than our version. Wow. So so but he's always like that. He's a bit of an ass when you talk to him on a personal level. I remember me and my mate Gerbs saw him at um we saw him at the Princess Charlotte. This is this is always this is my favorite gig story of all time. I don't know. It just, if you know Mark Eitzel this is this is what Mark Eitzel's like. So we go up to him afterwards and I I get him to sign my copy of uh the first American Music Club album, and he writes, this is shit on the cover, right? That's the first thing. So then he goes, what did it sound like? And, you know, this is the the era of Everclear when we saw him, right? And he goes, uh, we go, oh, it was great, Mark. It was great. And then he goes, no, really, what did it sound like? I said, oh, no, it was great. It was great. So he goes, no, come on, really, what did it sound like? So then my mate piped up, and he goes, well, actually, we couldn't hear the pedal steel very much. And he goes, oh. I knew it was awful it was terrible it was the worst gig ever so and that's exactly what he's like he's kind of a little bit of a self-sabotaging personality to be honest but uh, anyway there you go little nice aside. well it's it's good to it's yes i suppose sometimes people say don't meet your heroes but yeah that's it's Most, still it's still nice to have that experience and um chat a good yeah, bit of but, chat most of my heroes that i've met have all been really nice there, there's only been a couple and I'll, I won't name them, uh, who have been dicks, basically. Oh, everyone else has. Everyone else has been. I mean, I, I've met so many different people. Look, I'm just lucky that I've been able to meet so many people over the years, and every single one has been lovely, lovely, lovely. Except, like I said, a couple of guys, and that I'm not going to mention their names. No, but definitely no. I, so I should also mention we did actually play the last time we played live was 2010. We played at the Bitter End in New York because I was on vacation. Mm. My wife, my wife's relatives live in uh, Redding, Pennsylvania, so it's not too far from New York. So uh, I always go to New York, or we always go to New York. And Liz said, "Do you fancy playing a gig?" And I said, "Where?" And she goes, "The Bitter End." I goes, "You mean the Bitter End? It's like you know this the '60s folk club where like Bob Dylan." Joni Mitchell, all of yes. those guys, you know, all played. And I'm like, yeah, I'll play that. So uh, so that was 2010. So that was the that was the last live gig I've ever played. Uh I don't know if I'll ever play another one. I'm not a huge live person. I like I like the studio. I'm like I'm like the Beatles after Shea Stadium or whatever. I, I yes. I'm much I'm much more at home in the studio there than I am in a live setting. Because sort I'm, of Brian Wilson meets Phil Spector. 
Yeah, I mean, not obviously not that good, but I mean, <laughs> I, I just, I, I just like experimenting this in the studio more than trying to remember which chords go where in a song live and when everybody's looking at you. Yes. It's kind of weird because when I started playing live, the first gig I played, what was it, 1986? I didn't really know what I was doing, and I bluffed my way through it in front of 800 people. And the last gig I played. I knew I had to play the guitar inside out, and yet I was wrecked with stage fright. Uh, you know, so it, it's like as I've gotten older, my stage fright has got worse and worse, which is why I don't particularly no. I'm not that bothered about playing live anymore. Sadly, this is true. so what, what's the state then with you and Liz and the kind of the the band? Are you still sort of hoping to bring out a new album one day soon in this decade? Yes, uh, so we've got a two CD version of Cloud Beams coming out next year. So that's been mastered. Uh, that was mastered a couple of months ago, but sadly, the mastering engineer is one of my best friends passed away suddenly, and I've kind of not been in the mood no. to put it out because I'm I'm kind of a bit reminded of him a bit. Um, and we've got uh, I. A kind of an unplugged acoustic album in the works uh so we've recorded about half the tracks uh i'm trying to think yeah we've recorded about half the tracks so we demoed a load of stuff on we were sending four track cassettes backwards and forwards still mm -hmm. um i didn't transition into to digital recording until about 2018 so i didn't feel comfortable i didn't know the technology well enough to get a good sound out of it Yes, uh, but now I but now I do. So now I've got the experience, and I, I feel like I know what I'm doing. Uh, we can actually record a good a good sounding album. Yeah, fantastic. Uh, so it's, so, yeah, so it's all acoustic, and the rule is no no synthesizers, no drum machines. Like it's all got to be natural. You know, like an acoustic guitar, an electric bass going through an amp, a tambourine, or you know, whatever bongos, whatever. No, no artificial sound sources. That, you got to make you, you got to make yourself a rule, so it keeps it interesting. You know, Absolutely. so yeah, vegan so, friendly. Yeah. That's good. Yeah. Um, so yeah. so that's coming out as well next year. Yeah, I've still got to finish about four songs i think we've got there's about 12 or 13 songs they're all short and we've got to decide which ones we want to put out and which ones are going to stay in the can because we don't like them yeah uh, but yeah i've got to finish about four of them off and then we'll just kind of shuffle them about and uh, we've already got a title and unfortunately now i'm gonna need to find a new mastering engineer um, but we've, yes. we've got the artwork all sorted, the, the title and everything. It's just me finishing off a few bits and pieces. God, uh, that's fantastic. Over Have yeah. you sort of got more excited with the passing of time? Do you feel now, now that um, you got this far in your 60s, you know, that um, the band... I'm not, that... I'm not 60s yet. I'm 58. I'm 58. God. Damn. <laughs> Sorry about that. I didn't do the maths, did I? No, don't worry. Don't worry. <laughs> I, was born, I was born in 65. 65 so, okay yes, i was gonna say yeah. 66 there but yeah right yeah. so it's all happening anyway it's fine yeah. as long as as long as you're able to get up and get down yeah. get up from a chair without grunting you're fine yeah. or make that sound when you sit down which is yeah. also well, like the, a grunt 
the exciting thing for me is I've seen a bunch of my musician friends over here do what I'm about to do, which is retire. And then they'll have a lot, they can do music full time. So that, you know, so we're going to get this album out. Uh, I'll be 59 next April. I can retire, you know, sometime in probably 2025, something like that when I'm 60. And then I can just doodle around in the studio and do music and whatnot, which is until they put me in a pine box. That's all I want to do, basically. When you do your jazz fusion album. No, no, I'm not doing a jazz fusion album. Well, I don't know. You, you say that, no, but <laughs> 10 years time, that jazz fusion album might be happening. Yeah, no, I'm not good enough. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. You know, 10 years on the West Coast, you know. Yeah. Sort of suddenly feeling a bit sort of jazzy. So there you go. Oh, this is brilliant. Well, I'm so excited. And um, yeah, it's going to be, I'm, I'm really excited that you also, this faith, faith over reason. It was yeah. um, such a nice little kind of story there, actually. Yeah, um, I've still got a flyer that I picked up at Trent Polly with them on the bill or saying they will be playing next week or something like that. I can't remember. They were supporting like Throwing Muses or, or Lush at this gig. But like I said, I absolutely love them, and that's that was really the inspiration for the sound of of Evergreen Dazed. Fantastic! I will get in touch with her and um, and tell her that story because I'm sure she'll be sort of really underwhelmed, but kind of mildly amused <laughs> by it. You know, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Oh, she was lovely. She had that kind of vocal style, which was very clipped, wasn't it? There's quite a few band, you know, vocalists who. Had, um, I can't remember. There's somebody else I've done recently. The Would Be Goods, I think. She had a very clipped vocal. I don't know if yeah. that makes sense, but yeah, it was. I, I kind of know what you mean. the The way I look, uh, the way I hear her voice, and I know exactly what you mean about the Would Be Goods singer, and also Laura Veers is they can hold a note without warbling, right? And so it sounds pure and fresh. Mm. That's that's the way. That, I mean, that's how it feels. That's how I feel when I hear her voice it's very uh those voices are welcoming and em enveloping they're not kind of you know not ramstein shouting at you and telling you you're horrible kind of you no, know god whatever. no they're very there's a yeah. lovely kind of englishness to them actually yes same um, with uh shirley shirley Souter from uh what is it what's the band the guy who used to be in the razor cuts was in the band with her oh uh i'll get i'll get there i'll get there eventually razor cuts i have to um, have a look at that red chair red chair fadeaway right right so well this is very she's got exciting. the same kind of voice yeah i mean it was kind of mean because i know amelia fletcher's also she was in Toluda gosh heavenly and now in the swansea sound with a new single yeah. out this week and yeah. again that's kind of got i suppose it's just a, a very english there's no kind of american twang and yeah sort yeah of, but not not the same as the other vocalists, actually. Did you ever like the work of Mary Margaret O'Hara, who was this um, singer who did one album called Miss America in sort of '86? She had an incredible vocal on her. But um, uh, again, doesn't yeah, doesn't... I don't. I know the name, but I don't think I've heard anything yeah. by her. But yeah, I'm always I always like good female vocalists, and I'm always on the lookout. So maybe I'll check that out. Yes, have a little listen to Mary Margaret. I can't remember her her sister or cousin was quite a famous actress, I think, or something. Anyway, okay. look, well, thank you. I mean, if you could have whispered something to your 16-year-old self starting out, is there anything that you would have gone, yes, I would have said that to them, even if they ignored me, 
in young and foolish um no i it's funny i i was just thinking about this this morning i don't have any regrets about anything that i've done and i also realize that i've been very lucky i mean i'm not talking about my personal life but musically to be able to do what i'm doing with kind of minimal talent and have people like it um I just feel very lucky that that's happened to me because there are so many bands where they've played for years and don't get anywhere or, you know, back in the early 70s, they don't, you know, bands were great, but nobody signed them. So nobody heard them or, you know, yes. things like that. I think the one thing that came out of the the C86 DIY thing was basically just like punk, you can do it, but you don't need to be all shouty and loud, you know, so... I think that's really it. I, I'm just, I, I feel very lucky that I still get to do this kind of stuff in the world that we're living in today, to be honest. Yes. Well, it's, it is lovely. I must admit, the thing that I've noticed with the people, and I suppose Amelia Fletcher is one that comes to mind, is she's had the career and has probably still got the career, but has just had this music going on in the background kind of happily, yes. but knowing it's kind of something to do in the evenings when you've done everything else. And yes. has, has just kind of like done her thing. And I think a lot of the bands, quite a lot did the, you know, let's be in a band. Mm, not sure if we're going to be able to pay the rent. Let's get a career or job. And then let's get back to music a bit later on. I think it's, you know, so there's an awful lot of making music now. And I'm just kind of enjoying it for what it is. But as I realise it's made them feel very excited at three o'clock in the morning when they've yeah. just, you know, discovered the joy, you know, discovered their guitar again or thinking about getting their archives sorted out as well and um, putting those out and and just thinking, actually, we could just record again, put it out on Bandcamp. We, we'll be fine. You know, we yeah. might even play a gig one day, but it doesn't yeah. matter. We're, we're quite enjoying our 60s again and it feels yeah. quite exciting. So yeah. it is nice. It's nice to see. I don't know if you've noticed, and I'm just looking at all my books that I've got here on music, but everyone's writing their book at the moment and memoir yeah. and loads of films on sort of bands from the 80s, even bands that didn't even last more than sort of eight months have had managed to get a film made about them. So, um, yeah. Yes, it's it's a great period of archiving that's been going on actually. So um and Sarah Records have got a new book out by Jane Duffus. Yeah. Um which is a classic. I think it's nearly five hundred pages. There was the Michael White one, which is what which was Pop Kiss, you probably got that. Yeah, yeah. I was open. I, it's on my Christmas list, but it's difficult to get in the US. So I, I you know, I'm going to find out on Christmas Day if that book shows up. I'm hoping it does. But, yes, uh, P and P. Right. It's it yeah. is all there, isn't it? I know. Yeah. Did you get this? Um, this was a bit of a classic, actually, which was done by Neil Taylor, who was the journalist at the time who did the the NME. Um, he put the cassette together with three other two other people. I don't have a, that book, but that is a, another one. Yeah. There's a lovely bit on all the new Paisley stuff, actually, as well. Yeah. I mean, it's a really, yes, pillows, prayers, and all those people, T TV personalities, new psychedelia and the return of the 60s. It's yeah. all good, isn't it? We, we've, there's more books than you could imagine, actually. Even people have done books on Grebo. If you came from Leicester, you'd have loved Gay Bikers yeah. on Acid, probably, wouldn't you? Yeah, and Crazy Ed. So, yeah, <laughs> I know it's just I'm, I mean, I'm looking my wife's books kind of like we don't have enough bookshelves. So she tends to put her books in front of mine. So we, we have them too deep on a shelf. So I'm just kind of looking over and I can't actually see any of my music books anymore. But 
I did get. Um, um, have you come across this guy, Neil, yes, who's done the yep. Precious Accordance of London? He's been bringing yep. out all these kind of great John Peel, Janice Long sessions from Maid of Al Studios. So yep. that's been a good one as well. So yeah, I've got pretty much all of those. I don't, I don't, I'm not a big fan of some of the late '90s bands that he's put out, but that was because <laughs> I was living in the US, and it's kind of like a dead space for me. The late '90s, I, I wasn't listening to, I wasn't going to many gigs, and I wasn't listening to radio or anything, and I couldn't really listen to John Peel anymore. So yes, I, I kind of lost track of things during the late '90s. But uh, yeah, I've got most of those. I love the um, the One Thousand Violins one. Because I absolutely love those guys back in the day as well. So I know it's. I did an interview with the singer um, a few years ago, and that was absolutely hilarious. I can't quite yeah. believe the stories. And then the the singer, and he's got a fantastic voice. He was so much more serious. It sounded absolutely debauched. Because um, yes, they're just amazing band and amazing yeah. songs, brilliant. Yeah. And actually, he Colin Gregory. That's it. He went on to another band called the Dylans, didn't he? Which was quite a, yeah. an amazing band yeah um, i tracked down the guitarist in that band who i think is now in new york so um yes it's all good look oh um well look one thing i'd love to do i'll just hear indeed mysterious stuff there that was the end of the interview that was me in conversation with mark turrell finding out more about his life in music and art and much more and evergreen days i will give you the link to the website below but anyway this has been the C86 Show, David E. So if you want to contact me, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Just do C86 Show. I know, so obvious. And uh, all these interviews have been archived on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean. Anyway, have a great week. Stay safe.